Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. This is an additional episode in my little series that was Let Me See That Bass, Let Me See That Banjo, Let Me See That uh, Mandolin. Now I'm going to do the guitar. I've taught a lot of people, you know, the basics of bluegrass guitar. And I have told every one of them on their first lesson that if you want to play blues or rock and roll, you know, that kind of thing, I'm not really your guy, but I can get you you know, started on the basics because the basics of all guitar styles is the same. You have to learn how to tune the thing and, you know, just play a few chords and stuff. And then you branch out into the style you want to. And there have been uh, quite a few students that after a, you know, fairly short time, maybe six lessons or eight that I pointed them to a new teacher because, you know, they really wanted to get into something, some other style that was just not my thing. I've always been a bluegrass guy in terms of the music I've played and what I've taught. And, you know, there was, even though I know, I know some stuff about those other forms of music and I fiddle around with them, as you heard in a little bit in the last episode, but I don't claim to be any kind of expert on that thing. If you want to play blues guitar, go find a blues guitarist, you know, that sort of thing. But I think, you know, almost every, probably almost every bluegrass player, whatever instrument they play, they probably also have a guitar and also play a little bit of guitar. And there, there are a variety of reasons for doing that. But, you know, I, I don't know. Of all the people I've met, I can't think of one, mandolin players, fiddle players, banjo players, who don't also have a guitar and know the essentials of bluegrass guitar rhythm playing. And some of them are, are really good lead players as well. You know, uh, for example, a guy I know named Tony Duck, great mandolin player, great fiddle player. He also secretly plays the banjo, but he's a good guitar player too. Same goes for David Ellis and, you know, you just name, pick any, anybody and they've got a guitar. It's almost like the, the natural second instrument for all of the other players. But then there are those guitar players who just play guitar. That is it. That is, that is their thing. And those people tend to be singers. Buddy Ashmore is a good example of that. Bob Putnam is a good example of that. And you can get outside the Atlanta area and find many other examples of that. I don't know what else Jimmy Martin played, but I never saw him play anything but a guitar. Anyway, I've had a lot of people come to me because I was teaching banjo and mandolin and bass and beginning bluegrass guitar. I would have these students come. They want to learn how to play some bluegrass guitar. And I would teach lessons uh, for those beginners. And just like in the other, let me see that instrument 
podcasts, I want to walk you through what I would do with a student, hopefully on the first week. Um, and you know, my process of taking a look at their guitar, because if they're struggling with an instrument that can't be played without too much torture, they're going to have a lot of problems. So they would hand me their guitar and sometimes I would hand them mine, but I, I would usually just set mine aside initially because I don't want them to be looking at my guitar and fiddling around with mine while I'm trying to tell them about theirs. But mostly I'm trying to, you know, analyze their guitar. So let me walk through sort of my method for doing that. And the first thing I would do, obviously, is, is pick it up and play a, play a chord or two on it and see if the thing was in tune. And, you know, I might tune a little bit and say to the student, to the new student, uh, you know, I'm going to show you how to tune. Don't worry about that. Um, So I'd hit a couple chords on it and see how it feels. I want to see how it feels to my left hand. Then I'm going to take a good look at it. And the first thing, the most obvious thing that I would look at, I mean, let's set aside things like the guy walks in with a, some sort of uh, Korean made Telecaster copy I mean, that's going to be very obvious. And I'm going to say, are you, you know, surely you, you're, that's not really a bluegrass guitar. You know, that didn't happen very often. Usually people walked in with a typical dreadnought acoustic guitar flat top. And if they had a cutaway, big deal. I'd just ignore that. That's not commonly seen in bluegrass, but you know, if they had a cutaway and it was painted blue or, you know, that wasn't what a, I, I didn't want to just bash them, you know, like, well, man, you need a new guitar, you know. I didn't do that because you could learn the basics of bluegrass playing on a Takamini cutaway painted blue. Or, or how about a Dean? A Dean. You know, you can do that. And eventually, you know, when you join the tribe, you know, you'll probably get into some better guitars. But I, I'm set that aside. I'm not there to criticize their guitar. I just want to look at it. And the first thing I'm going to do after I make sure it's in tune is just look at the strings. And you can tell a lot by the color of the strings. If I look down and I see, well, they're 80-20 or some kind of bronze string, but the the first and second string, which are plain steel, they're very black looking, especially in the areas where the fingers don't touch them. And the others are kind of a greenish olive drab color and funky looking. And you can actually look on the underside of the string. And from the player's perspective, when you've got it in your lap and you're looking under there, sometimes you'll even see bits of crud and things like growing on the bottom of the strings. So if the strings are really nasty looking, I just make mental note of that. I, I don't immediately just start telling them, oh man, these strings are, man, these are bad. You, dude, you need to change it. I don't do that. I just make mental note of it. And along about lesson three or something, we may have a little string change in lesson. I'll give them a set of strings and show them how to do it. 
This isn't about beating the guy up for walking in with a, you know, some yard sale guitar or something that was in a closet of his, his uncle that used to play bluegrass, you know, that kind of thing. So I'll look at the strings because you cannot play good sounding guitar with bad sounding strings. Now these strings that I'm playing right now, I put on this guitar about, I guess about six months ago. And they still sound pretty good. And just bear in mind, I, I don't like the sound of a brand new string. I like them when they're played in a little bit and they get a little more thumpy. The reason these strings being six months old are still okay to my ears because I don't play guitar that much. I I play it around the house and I sometimes use it when I'm recording rhythm tracks for just experimental things I'm doing or for rhythm tracks that accompany some of the video lessons that I've done. So I'm not, I'm not out there, you know, wearing this thing out two, three times a week, sweating all over it and spilling beer on the strings and all. So for me, the, the strings last a lot longer. So six months, they're still sounding good. You know, you can wipe them down every now and then, uh, you know, when you, before you put them away and they'll be okay for a good long while. I could probably get a year out of a set of strings and still be happy with the sound of the instrument. But if you're out there playing in a band and you're hitting some jams and you know, you're playing the guitar a lot more than I do they don't last near that long, especially when you start playing outdoor gigs in the spring and summer in the South where there's a lot of humidity. And, you know, if you just ate chicken wings and then you play your guitar, you know, your, your strings are going to suffer. So the new student is sitting there. I'm going to just take stock of the strings. That's an important factor. I need to know, do they need new strings? Probably they do. And that will entail teaching them what strings to get and how to, how to do the changing. And it's not, you know, acoustic, you know, like a Martin style guitar, the string chain changing is not as easy as something like a mandolin because you got those bridge pins to deal with. It's a little weird. You know, the beginner is not even going to understand how that bridge pin is removed and all those sorts of things. So that, that will entail probably a lesson to show them about all that. I'm not going to do that in the first lesson. I just want to look at it. The other thing I'm going to look at as I, you know, take a, take stock of what's the condition of the strings is then I'm going to look up at the peg head and I'm going to look at, look at the wraps around the, the tuners and how much extraneous string garbage is hanging on there. Are there strings? wound, you know, the wrong way around the peg. And is there like a mile of string wrapped around the E string, the low E and are the ends sticking up with a poke people? Are there, are there like six inch sections of string dangling out there vibrating and stuff? I just want to look if, if the, if the peg head looks nice and clean and neat, then I'll move on. But of course, I don't know that they put them on. So during the string changing lesson, I'm going to show them how to do all that. So it's nice and neat. 
and the strings don't slip and the tuning functions correctly, you know. So set that aside, but I will take notice of that. The next thing I'm going to do is look down at the bridge end. And for, again, from the player's perspective, if I have the guitar on my knee, I can look at the bridge, the saddle, and the bridge pins, and the bridge itself. And what I'm going to do is, the first thing I'm going to look at is how tall is that saddle. You, if, if that saddle is so low that it's just barely peeking above the wood of the bridge that's glued on, then I know that saddle has been cut down and down and down to try to get the action playable, to lower the action. And that generally means the neck is moving forward or that, that section of the top is dropping a little bit. So I just want to, I want to see some saddle, you know, then I want to just very quickly and just look across the line of the top of the bridge pins. If I see one poking up an eighth of an inch higher than its neighbors, that's kind of a sign that the string balls have eaten up either the, the uh, bridge plate on the inside of the guitar or the, the, uh, the bridge pin itself is just chewed up beyond hope. So I just want to kind of look and see if they're generally, you know, in a nice line, nothing just sticking up. I had a, I had a bridge pin that was like, well, first of all, on this guitar that I'm holding in my hands right now, it's an 86 Martin and my a string, the fifth string, the, um, the bridge plate inside is getting kind of worn out. The ball has eaten away at the bridge plate, which is the underside where the ball of the string uh, contacts. And it's held in there with a bridge pin that's just a wedge fit that just pushes down in a tapered hole. And I have gone through, you know, two or three sets of bridge pins. That string, what would happen every time if I just put it on normally and I tuned it up to pitch, I could just watch that bridge pin just raise up about a quarter of an inch and that's where it's seated. And I used to deal with this by adding an extra, a ball, you know, guitar strings for, for these pin type bridges are ball end strings. So you'd save the old balls. You'd get a pair of wire cutters and cut the little balls off the ends and keep a couple of them around. And then when I would change strings, I would thread a, an extra ball onto the string and then insert it and then put the pin in. And that would help, help that situation a little bit because if the pin, if the ball is rising up too high, there's the, the wound strings as they go around the loop, they're wound double in the, in about the last half inch of the string. And if that double wound part rides up over the saddle, your tone is going to be very bizarre. So you, you don't want that extra wrap over the saddle. So sometimes that little ball trick works. There is, I'm sure on, on YouTube, there are probably somebody's made a video about this. I learned the ball trick from a little booklet that I found in the case of this Martin that I play. There's a little book put out by 
the C.F. Martin Company. It was shipped with the guitar. It's called The Care and Feeding of Your Martin Guitar. And let me just thumb through here. There's uh, Here, I'll just read you what they say about it. They actually talk about this in the book, the official Martin book. It says, you might occasionally encounter an older guitar with a thin bridge. Let me break right there. The reason the bridge would be thin is because the guitar is bending over time or the neck joint is shifting. And to get the action down low enough to play it, they have, you know, cut the saddle down to get it playable and reached the maximum there where they had to actually shave off the top of the, the ebony saddle a bridge itself. So that's what they're talking about when you, when they say encounter an older guitar with a thin bridge means they're doing everything they can do at the bridge and saddle before they tackle resetting the neck, which ultimately will probably need to be done on a guitar like that. But here's what they say. You might occasionally encounter an older guitar with a thin bridge or a string with a longer double winding adjacent to the ball end. That's that little extra thick area right at the tail end of the string as contact with the bridge saddle by this winding is not recommended. We have shown an old luthier's trick or remedy. An extra ball from an old string is placed over the string and drawn against the first ball. This will effectively back the string into the bridge, removing the heavy area of the string from direct saddle contact. You really need this little booklet to understand all this, but I'm going to look for things like that. If I see, you know, bridge pins poking up and things like that, it, it could be that they just need a, a new set of bridge pins. Anyway, I just want to notice these things, you know, for me as the teacher, everything I've talked about here for 10 minutes takes about 15 seconds. And I'm not going to go through it all with a student because I don't want to spend, you know, their half hour, you know, bashing their guitar and making them walk out going, good, I need a new guitar. But I take notice of these things, and you should too if you're a guitar player. The next thing I'm going to do after I've scoped out general string condition, is it in tune? What's the peg head look like? Is it a rat nest or is it looking pretty good? I'm going to grab the end pin, which is over on the right end of the guitar. A, I want to know if there is an end pin, and B, I want to know if it's tight, good and snug. And I'll grab that end pin and just push in and twist a little bit. And if I don't want to feel that thing turning, I want that thing tight. Now, I'm not going to take a hammer to it and beat it in there. You do that, you will split the tail block of your nice guitar. Don't do that, but I just want to feel it and grab it pretty hard and twist on a little bit. I don't want to feel any movement at all because if that thing is loose and they put a strap on, they may drop their guitar. So I just feel that. Next thing I'm going to do is feel the other strap button. And in most, most bluegrass guitarists that I know will have an additional strap button at the heel of the guitar. It'll be on the, as you're holding the guitar and looking down on it, you won't see it. But if you reach around the, the heel, it'll be right there under, well, let's see, just about exactly under the, the middle between the 12th and 13th fret on that lower side of the neck. 
want to see if there's one there because the next thing they're going to, I'm going to tell them that, that they need a strap or maybe they have a strap. You know, there may already be a strap on there, but I just want to see, is there a heel button, heel strap button there? Because if there's not, they're going to have to tie their strap on somewhere up at the peg head. And that presents a number of issues. Not that it hasn't been done by many, many guitar players. If you don't have that strap button at the heel, you have no choice. You have to tie it on somewhere at the peg head. And that the way that strap leaves your shoulder and heads out toward the peg head, it tends to push the guitar over to your right side and kind of gets it out of a natural position. So as far as the guitar hanging naturally so that it's comfortable to play, it's better to have that heel button. But if it has to be tied on, it has to be tied on. So I'm going to look at that. That that strap running from the shoulder down to the peg head can, depending upon where it's tied on, bump into your thumb as you're forming chords. And your fingers can actually feel the strap and be kind of feeling constricted up there. It also makes it kind of difficult to grab the tuners because you're reaching under and over the string or the cord or whatever that's tied around the, up around the peg head. So if somebody comes in with a strap that is tied on the peg head, I'm going to at least talk to them. I'm going to show them my guitar and show them, you know, the standard method of applying the installing a strap button at the heel. And if they want it done, I'll, I've done many of them, but one thing I don't suggest that a beginner do is don't go down to the music store. They'll have a little card with like 48 strap buttons held onto this cardboard with screws. And you go in there and you say, I need a strap button. And they'll pull you one out of that card and sell it to you for a buck or whatever it is. Do not take that thing home, estimate approximately where it goes, and grab your screwdriver and start just screwing it into that heel. That is not the proper way to put a screw into wood. If you do that, because the screw has some diameter, as it goes into that wood, it's gnawing away a little hole. The threads are gnawing at the, at the wood and acting a bit like a drill. But there's a lot of metal going into that wood and forcing the wood apart. So if, if you, you want to try this, just get a two by four and get a big fat screw and just run it in. There is a good possibility that you'll split the wood because the threads are going to draw that screw inwards and the screw is going to force the wood apart. And that's not what you want to do. You certainly don't want to split the heel on your nice guitar, your Martin or whatever it is. So what you have to do to install one correctly is pre-drill a little hole, a, a pilot hole, that is just a hair smaller diameter than the central portion of the screw so that as you run it in, only the threads are cutting into the wood and the central part of the screw has a pre-made channel made by that drill bit. So it's super easy to, to do if you know those things and if you've done a few of them. So m many times I would tell a student, you know, if you, if you want me to put a strap button on there, let's, let's do that next week or the week after. 
and I would just do it right in front of them, get out my little hand drill, my, my pop's little hand turned drill and make sure I have the correct size drill bit and drill the little hole at the right angle. And then take his, take his strap button and take a, take some soap and soap the threads a little bit and start it in and go about halfway in and back it back out and then turn it back in. It's, it's like you're tapping the hole using the screw as your, as your tap and just snug it up and you're done and it won't ever split because you relieve the pressure by drilling out the, that little pilot hole. So don't just go running screws into the side of your guitar. All right, enough about that. I'm sure you probably already knew all that stuff. So I've, I've covered the strap buttons. I may show them a strap and talk about that. Next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to play some notes on the guitar and just see if at least up to the fifth or seventh fret that I'm not hearing any weird stuff with the frets. I want to hear a different note on every fret, number one. That sort of thing. I don't want to hear this. Where I get the same note twice in a row means you got some fret problems. You have a low fret or a high fret. So the, the frets are the next thing I'm just going to look at. And you're going, if it's a used guitar, you're going to find some fret wear. There's always fret wear. That's the point. This You want the fret softer than the string. You want to sacrifice the fret, not the string. Because if let's say your fret is like carbide steel or something, and your string is kind of a, a soft steel, you play it and press that string down on there and do some bends, especially you're going to begin to eat away at the string. And that's going to create weird uh, nodes in the vibrational pattern of, of the, the string. It's going to start sounding really weird, really fast. So the frets are meant to be sacrificed. They're deliberately softer than the string. And, you know, there are these Evos and, you know, there's new frets, stainless steel and all this stuff. And I'm not going to get into all the debate about that. But generally speaking, the frets have been designed to be replaced. So I just want to look at it. I, I want to look at it and play, play all of the individual notes on all of the strings, at least between the nut and the fifth fret, because a beginner is not going to be playing above the fifth fret for a while. So I just want to make sure each note is clear and not buzzing. If I get a buzz, it could be that the next fret up is too high or that the fret I'm on is too low. It could be either one of those. So I just want to confirm that, you know, that all the notes are okay. I also want to check the open strings. I just want to play each open string. Oh, now I hear a little buzz there. been the way I hit it, but uh, we're here in the middle of summer in South Georgia, and it has rained and rained and rained and rained and rained. I remember five years ago, we went uh, all of June and three weeks of July with no rain, and it looked like a desert around here. 
I mean, the grass was all brown. I was having to feed hay to the donkeys and the horse. We were in a drought. I don't remember what year it was. It was about four years ago. This year, no problem. We get those afternoon thunder showers coming up from the Gulf of Mexico every day. And the grass grows, and I'm out there cutting grass all the time when I'd rather be in here fooling around with this stuff. But all that humidity affects your instrument. And I, again, turn to the uh, care and feeding of your Martin guitar booklet. Um, I'm looking through here. Let's see what they have to say about humidity. Here we go. Humidity, temperature, and storage. I'm going to skip down to the second paragraph of this. Your guitar is made of thin wood, which is easily affected by temperature and humidity. That's important to know. And this combination is the most important single part of your guitar's surroundings. Martin aims to keep the factory at a constant 35 to 45% humidity, and I'm sure they mean relative humidity, and 72 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. These conditions approximate the average conditions for two-thirds of the United States. If either humidity or temperature get far away from these factory conditions, your guitar is in danger. Okay, I'm not going to read you the whole booklet, but it's a, it's a cool little booklet. You might, I don't know if they still put that out. You might be able to contact the Martin Guitar Company and ask them for a copy of the care and feeding of your Martin guitar. They probably want you to buy a guitar to get it. The point is, that little buzz I'm hearing right there on that string, that's the uh, fourth string, and my first string has got a bit of a buzz, just a little bit of sizzle with it, is from this humidity. So, I'm just going to double check that their guitar open strings are sounding nice and clear or pretty clear. I mean, you can pick any string. If you pick it in the, if you push it hard downwards with your pick, you can make any string buzz. Now I took the pick there and just pressed it towards the soundboard, and I get it vibrating in an up and down way, and I can make it buzz. Do it with a bass string. That one's real easy to make buzz. Um, because it's already too low. But if you pick it in a sideways manner, you know, parallel to the plane of the strings going across, that buzz doesn't happen usually. Because the string is energized to move side to side instead of up and down. So pick technique, picking technique, has a lot to do with how clean your picking sounds. Here's that first string, which has got a little buzz in it right now. Because the of the humidity changes here. This is I'm gonna pick it towards the soundboard. Very buzzy, but if I pick it more in a parallel to the string plane, and I'm gonna hit it pretty hard. You hear a little buzz right at the start and then it stops. So if I'm you know, if it sounds as good as this one. I'm probably going to say pass and just move on with the lessons, but I'm still going to notice that. And, you know, maybe by fall that will have cured itself. 
The next thing I'm going to do, just quickly with the student, again, because we got to hurry up and get to that G chord, you know, and start playing some songs, is I'm going to turn the neck vertical and set the bottom of the guitar down on my feet. And then I'm going to sight down the, the neck. And the strings are straight. They are your reference. I mean, that string tuned is a straight line. So you compare the straight line of the string with the surface of the fingerboard. And I try to only look from the from where the neck joins the body to the nut. I try to ignore that section that's glued, that section of the fingerboard that is glued down to the face of the guitar, that extra four inches or so of fingerboard. Try to ignore that. And sometimes I'll put my fingers right there against the side of the of the neck on each side and just kind of block my view of that and then sight down that line and you can get a pretty good um, estimate of what is the shape of the neck you know is it perfectly flat is it rising up in the center let's say around frets five through seven is it lower in the center so you can either be flat, you can have forward bow, that means it looks like it's scooping down, or you can have back bow, which means it seems to be rising up in hump. These are very tiny, tiny little things that do affect the sound of the guitar and the playability and all that kind of thing. Today, practically every guitar has a truss rod. so. When they hand me their guitar, I, I, number one, want to find out, do they even have a truss rod? And most guitars, you can tell by just looking at the peg head, and if there's a truss rod cover, there's probably a truss rod. However, I, I mentioned this in, a, in, a, in the, one, I think the Let Me See That Banjo podcast, that I had this banjo called the Conqueror that I traded for. I was going to use it as a loaner. And it had a a truss rod cover on the peg head embossed with the words uh, steel reinforced neck. And that sort of implies a truss rod. Took the little cover off and there was nothing under it, just wood. And disassembled the banjo, took the neck off of the pot, and there was no truss rod. Now maybe they had a steel rod or something buried in there, you know, a piece of angle iron or something. I don't know. But the cover alone does not prove the existence of a truss rod. Now, Martins do not have a truss rod cover because they're not adjustable from the peghead end. The truss rod is, you know, embedded in the neck and the adjustment is through the sound hole. So it's pretty easy. And, and a lot of guitar makers have copied the Martin way of doing it. You can just tip the guitar and look up into the sound hole right under the end of the fingerboard. And you'll see a little socket, you know, a little Allen wrench socket um, bolt or nut right there. And you can look in there and see if there is a truss rod, an adjustable truss rod. So if the neck is super flat and you're getting this kind of buzziness, or if it's bowed forward and it's just really wickedly hard to play, you know, say from fret three to seven, then a little truss rod adjustment may correct that. I'm not going to talk about the student with that at the beginning. I just want to know, do they even have a truss rod? We may get to that later. 
The other thing is that buzzing can be simply caused by a nut that is too low. And once a nut is too low, it's just too low, you know. You you can't put back what you filed away. So it's possible to take to have an open string that sounds good, and you want to lower the action at the nut. So you take the string out and you file the slide a little deeper and eventually get it to where it's buzzing. At that point, you've gone too far, and the, the only way to stop that buzzing is to dress the frets down lower, which you don't want to do unless you have to. You could cure it that way because that string is vibrating against the first fret. That's the sound you're hearing. Like on that one. That buzz right there is caused by the first string vibrating strongly and barely touching the first fret. So, what you want to do is, what I'm doing at that first lesson, just looking at the nut. Generally speaking, most guitars, especially if they're brand new, just came off the shelf, just were unpacked from the container ship coming over from China is the nuts are going to be too high. So many times I'll go to form that first chord and go, whoa, man, this is, this is wicked. Play a few notes on the first fret. And if they're really hard to push down, probably your nuts too high. And in this episode, I'm not going to try to tell you how to do that, but just bear in mind, new instruments generally come with the nuts too high. And then you can cut them down yourself if you do a little research and, you know, learn a bit about it. Or you can carry it down to the music store and let some guy hack away at it. Or you can find yourself a good luthier that knows what they're doing and let them tweak all these things like adjusting the nut, the truss rod, maybe fooling around with the saddle. Sometimes those buzzes can be, can be occurring at the saddle itself. If you hear the buzz up and down the, the fingerboard at every note, it's coming from the saddle. Because that, you know, once you fret a note, it's no longer the nut. The nut is not involved in anything once you fret a note. So if you're getting buzzes at every single fret and open, which that one wasn't, you could be suspicious of the saddle. Sometimes the top of the saddle Maybe the strings have eaten their way down into the saddle and created a flat bottom so that the, the string as it vibrates is actually, you know, beating against a portion of the tip top of the saddle. And sometimes those slots can be manipulated, rounded over, smoothed over just a little bit, and that cleaned up. If your saddle is plastic or a fairly soft material that's a lot more common for the string to eat its way down into the saddle. If you got bone or fossil ivory or micarta, some of those really hard materials, it's less likely to do that, but it still does happen. That string is a is an amazingly powerful abrasive thing. So sometimes just, you know, during a string change, you'll pull your saddle out and just take a look at, you know, and when they put a brand new saddle on a guitar, they don't cut any slots into the top of that saddle. It's just smooth, just slick and rounded. And, you know, you may need to restore that is what I'm saying to, to clean up the sound of a string. 
Okay, so this beginner is like, if I were talking, you know, here I've gone, what, like 39 minutes talking, they would be falling asleep and going, God, I need to find me a new guitar teacher. So, as I said before, I don't talk about all this stuff. I just want to take note of it and then little by little take care of the things that need to be taken care of. Because you want a guitar that sounds pretty good, is fairly easy to play, and doesn't make a lot of extraneous buzzes and rattles and stuff. I'm not in the least going to discuss with them tonal qualities and things like that. Okay, the last thing I'll probably do before I hand it back is just, you know, turn the thing around and just take a good look at it and see if there are any cracks or, you know, separations, seam separations. I'm going to look at the neck joint. Sometimes you can tell if a neck joint has moved a good bit because if you just look at where the side joins the heel, you know, if you see an eighth of an inch of like something that's not that shiny and just kind of looks weird, you know, you can sometimes see that a neck is moving, pulling out. Uh, so, you know, I just want to kind of look at the basic box of it and maybe tap on a little bit and see if I hear any rattles, you know, like stuff that's, you know, like a loose brace inside. You know, if you tap on it and you hear, bzz, 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 you may have an unglued brace there that may have been caused by, you know, somebody bumping the back of the guitar against a hard object. Just a good, nice shot, you know, punch it. If you take your fist and punch the back of your guitar, you'll probably bust quite a couple of braces loose. And that stuff can happen. And sometimes the brace will spring away far enough that it doesn't really buzz. But sometimes it's just barely broken loose and it'll sound, you know, it's that effect of like, imagine if you put a handful of rice on a snare drum and then hit the snare drum. You know, it's, it's a serious buzzing sound. So, you know, tapping around on the body of the guitar, and I'll usually mute the strings. You know, I just, I don't want to hear like extraneous buzzing, sympathetic vibrations going on. Ought to sound kind of like a bongo, you know? That was me not holding the string down. So I'm just looking for anything that might be structurally wrong. And then I look at it and I go, man. This is great. Here, let me show you how to play it, and I hand it back to him. Then we get on with things. So that's what I do when I examine a new student's guitar. And hopefully that will give you a few ideas. I may, I may look around on the web and see if I see some of this basic information. This little booklet, this the care and feeding of your Martin guitar, is really good. And the last thing I... Oh, I forgot to mention this. The last thing I want to mention, if and when, or rather when the string changing needs to be done, there is a bewildering amount of strings. I did a, pod, a podcast episode all about strings one time. And, you know, they may go down to the pawn shop and buy a set of, you know, nylon strings or electric guitar strings or come in with some... There are just a lot of guitar strings, but I, I just want to read you. I'm going to have to turn this into the into the correct light. If you look into the sound hole of a Martin, this is a an 86 Martin 
HD 28, you look straight into the sound hole and they have a little, a little rubber stamp, or I don't know if it's burnt. I think it's rubber stamped straight in the sound hole on the little strip of spruce that runs down the center of the guitar. And it says use medium or lighter strings only period. Medium strings or lighter. That's what Martin says. And if you put something on there heavier than that, they're not going to honor the warranty because, you know, heavier, thicker strings put more tension on the guitar and tend to bend the neck and pull the thing apart and warp the top and so on. Medium gauge strings do that too, but they do it within the limits that Martin is expecting. And, you know, I know some players that, that like a good heavy string, but for the safety of the guitar, stick with medium. And I know there are so many manufacturers, there are quite a variety of medium gauge strings, but I think you're safe. If it at least says medium, you know, you're probably okay. Um, the other thing, and I, I didn't, I didn't mention this, but the other thing I will look at with the guitar is the action, just a general, how high are the strings above the frets? And I can tell about that when I'm sighting down the neck and when I'm playing some notes up and down, but I forgot to mention that I also just want to look down there right where the neck joint meets the body and look at the height of the string above the frets. How high is it? And I, as, a, as the teacher, you know, I've got some experience. So if I see a string that's a half an inch up, I know we got some serious action problems here. If I see a string that is maybe a 32nd of an inch off the fret, we also have serious problems because it's way too low and it's going to buzz and rattle like crazy. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what the correct height should be. And a lot of people take measurements at the 12th fret. Uh, just for visual reference, you know, I don't know what mine's at right about now. If I look right at the 12th fret, I'm probably, I'm over an eighth of an inch. I'm probably more like, three sixteenths of an inch, maybe somewhere between an eighth and three sixteenths right now. And a uh, last thing I want to mention to you, and this I wouldn't bring up with the student at all, but with my Martin, I have two saddles. I have a summer and a winter saddle and I switch them and I got them marked on there with pencil S for summer and W for winter. And I made both of them. Sometimes I forget to change them. But that, that change that occurs in the, in the straightness of the neck and in the, the swollenness of the body, uh, I made those saddles, you know, in the middle of summer, in the middle of winter, and got them to where my action was exactly like I wanted with no buzzing, and I carry those two saddles. But I have to admit, because I don't play that guitar out, that, I don't play the guitar out that much, that sometimes I forget which one of them's in there. And the only way for me to figure it out is to take the strings off and pull the saddle out and look and see what's written on it. Or I look in the case where the other one is. If, if the W one is in the case, well, then I know, you know, okay, I've got the summer one in. Anyway, it's, it's maybe for you, it may be wise to have two saddles. 
you know, if you're in an area that has high humidity swings like we do here in the South, you know, down here in South Georgia, if you live in Arizona, I don't know what that's like. I've never lived in Arizona. It seems kind of dry to me and it might just be the one saddle will get you, get you by. Anyway, just wanted to mention the summer and winter saddle routine. And, uh, that's it for this podcast. You guitar players. I, I have very little stuff on my website, uh, for sale for guitar players, instructional material. The one thing that I do have, it's called bluegrass guitar 101. And it's really designed for people who have the basics down of basic bluegrass rhythm playing, which that is, I do have a, a site on my website, how to play the guitar, how to play bluegrass guitar, whatever it's called, where I go through the basics of tuning and forming the, you know, the basic chords that you'll need and the essential style of bluegrass being that bass strum. That's up there for free, but then I've got this little ebook called Bluegrass Guitar 101 where I provide tablature for a bunch of songs to show you know, that the stylistic characteristics that you see in bluegrass and it's, it's partly there for beginners, but it's also there for that rock and roll guy or that blues guy that, you know, that dude that he's a really good guitar player and he goes to a bluegrass jam session and man, these, these bluegrassers are running circles around him and he's over there strumming away in four, four time. This thing could be a, an assistance to a, to a player who just wants to understand what in the world are they doing, you know, and to get them in that two, four, or that four, four cut time mindset. Teach them to do more of that and less of that, you know, whatever they do in blues and rock, you know, anyway, that little thing is up there. I'll put a link to that on the show notes. If you happen to know some, you know, blues and rock guy who's showing up at your bluegrass jam, you might say, Hey, scope this out. And you will understand better the core elements of bluegrass rhythm guitar playing. So that's that bluegrass guitar 101. And of course, I do have the Jam Session Survival ebook, my $5 classic, which just keeps on selling, of the 100, 100 most played bluegrass songs at jam sessions and the chord progressions to them. And that can be handy for a guitar player or a banjo player, mantle player, dobro player, bass player, anybody. And I want to mention that I'm in the process of revising that. I, I, the original version had 50 songs and then I upped it to a hundred. And what I'm doing right now, and I'm about halfway through it is I am, making an additional version so that when you, when somebody purchases it, they'll get the full size eight and a half by 11 page size, the version that now exists, but there'll also be a second version as a PDF that you can drop onto your iPhone or your iPad and stick it in iBooks. And I've reformatted everything, or I'm in the process of reformatting all of the, the pages to better suit mobile devices. So if, if you, if you're an iPhone person and I suspect a lot of other smartphones, you'll be able to put this PDF in there and the, the stuff will be oriented vertically the way you normally hold the phone. 
and the the chord progressions are going to be enlarged to their maximum size so that it's e easier to read. Now I'm going to include both versions. So if if you're the type that you like to take the thing and print it out and carry it with you and set it on a chair next to you or something, I'm going to make both of those options available. But basically I am right now in the process of creating the jam session survival mobile version. So look for that here in the future. I should be, I'm hoping to be done with that thing in within a couple of weeks and here on the podcast, I'll, I will mention it. So all you guitar players, um, as far as playing, I just recommend that you listen a lot to Del McCurry because he's the man. Now I also like Jimmy Martin's guitar playing. Now look, I like Tony Rice too. I, I love Tony Rice. But if you want to get the basics of bluegrass rhythm style down, you know, you might spend a little time with uh, Lester Flatt and uh, some of the, the many great rhythm guitar players that have played with Bill Monroe over the years. Now, the modern crop of guitar players that's out there now, many of them are great rhythm guitar players too. But sometimes it's buried in so much additional, you know, fluff because every generation learns from the previous generation. Sometimes it's better to go back to Doc Watson, Norman Blake, you know, and it, if you don't want to go back, if you want to pick somebody who's currently playing, just pick Del McCurry. He, he is just a wonderful bluegrass rhythm guitarist among many other wonderful qualities. You listen to him play guitar and buddy, that is bluegrass guitar. I do love Del McCurry and the way he plays and sings. Anyway, y'all take care, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast.